This is Listen to the Editors, a series of interviews with journal editors to unveil the trends in research for operations and supply chain management. I'm your host, Yuri Gavronsky. This month, we recorded our episode live in the Meet the Editors session at the 2019 Academy of Management Annual Conference. That session took place on August the 12th. We had five editors representing four journals. Wendy Tate was representing the Journal of Purchasing and Supply Management. Morgan Swink was representing the International Journal of Operations and Production Management. Chris Voss was representing the Journal of Service Management. Tyson Browning and Suzanne de Treville were representing the Journal of Operations Management. Enjoy the episode. So I hope everyone's been having a wonderful time at the Academy. What we have here to kick off the day is uh, our Meet the Editor session. So without further ado, I'll have each of the editors uh, just give uh, a brief introduction. Uh, so I'm Wendy Tate. I represent the uh, Journal of Purchasing and Supply Management. Unlike a lot of the, the other editors up here, we are uh, a niche journal where we really look for articles that are related to purchasing and to supply management. Um, we are, I, my co-editor-in-chief, Louise Knight, is in Europe, and it was a, actually a European-based journal to start. But we have been increasing our submissions and get, trying to get submissions from other parts of the world and really trying to include more researchers from other parts of the world. So if you're doing any research in the area of purchasing and supply, please send it my way. Good morning, I'm Morgan Swink. I'm uh, representing the International Journal of Operations Production Management, ITOPM, today. I'm a consulting editor, uh, along with a number of other folks. Actually, this distinguished gentleman to my left is also a consulting editor for the journal, but uh, the uh, editors asked, asked me to represent. So. Uh, most of you are probably familiar with that journal. It's been around for a long time. Um, I guess similarly, it started off kind of for the a European uh, orientation, but it's very much a global journal now. And uh, as an American, I encourage you to uh, you know, consider that journal, uh, even if you're not in that continent, in the European continent. It's uh, I don't know what you'd say. to distinguish it. It's uh, it's it's very it's improved tremendously uh, in the last in the last decade or so. It's uh, Rated at the highest levels uh, in the European rating, at least. My own personal experience with the journal has been that it's it's uh, gives great reviews, uh, pretty good response time. Of course, that varies uh, from from cycle to cycle, but uh, it's it's a good journal. It's maybe more um, open or uh, it's somewhat more uh, open to qualitative types of uh, studies. Uh, those of you who haven't published there, if you do qualitative research, I would encourage you to. Yeah. It's, it's very open to any kind of methodology, as long as it's empirical. It's very empirically focused. But uh, relative to some of the other outlets, I, I believe uh, IGOPM is a great place for qualitative stuff. Uh, so that's all I'll say for now. Yeah. And they have an amazingly yeah. fast review process. Yeah, they it's do. A, they do now. It is amazing. It's something like less than 30 days or something. Um, it's improved. Um, 
And those of you who have bad experience in the past, the new, the new editorial team has changed things absolutely massively. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're, they're really good. Uh, they, they, they're set up that if you're really professional, both in response times and in quality of reviews. So yes. real change, people have bad experiences in the past. I'm here representing the uh, Journal of Service Research. Um, it, it, it is a, a journal which publishes more all disciplines about services. It is, on the whole, dominated by people out of marketing, but it very much welcome people who wish to, to publish about service management from an operational and systems and, and, and network perspective. Um, those of you who don't know it, I would recommend we published a review article about research directions in service management about three years ago. Ostrom and Al, I'm one of the authors. And so if you're interested in, in the nature of the articles that they welcome, the nature of the topics they welcome, I've, I would recommend that you, you read that article. I could give you a very, a very good insight into the scope of the journal and the scope of the interest of the journal. Hi, I'm Tyson Browning, and uh, Suzanne and I are co-editors-in-chief of Journal of Operations Management. I don't know we'll say a whole lot about JOM. I think most of you know about it, but it's focused on empirical research. And with that said, it's very broad across operations and supply chain management, broad topically, broad methodologically. We uh, welcome qualitative, quantitative research, and we have 11 departments, and most of these departments are topical, with the exception of interventionist research and a methods department, and that's because we're especially trying to incubate interventionist research, which includes things like design science and action research and uh, other things we're still all collectively as a community working to figure out. So it's uh, been an interesting few years working to push and evolve that area so that we can all make better progress publishing those types of papers. So, uh, you know, building on that, uh, we really expect that the research that is published in the Journal of Operations Management will make a difference that decision makers will make better decisions uh, and this will be measurable uh, and it will help us to understand better what matters, why it matters, how it matters, and what you do. So let's think for a moment about what science is. Uh, so science we're defining as learning from observation. So what do we mean by empirical? We mean that you observe something. If you can convince us that you observe it, uh, then we are going to be very open to it, uh, to interpreting it as sufficiently empirical. Uh, and uh, then another thing which is important, which is why we're incubating interventionist research, is that we realize that we, like most people in management, uh, uh, are not doing natural science. Uh, the trying to do natural science uh, has created artificial constraints over research and management. Uh, and we're realizing that if we relax that constraint, there's a lot of really great research uh, that can be incubated. Now, by incubated, I want to emphasize that Tyson and I, and also the department editor, uh, are standing by to, to help, to coach, to provide guidance. Uh, because this is something that we don't have a lot of experience with. So when we're here next year, we'll probably be saying some things that are a little bit uh, different. 
Uh, also, we are stretching both how we understand operations. It's not just somebody uh, on an assembly line in a factory. Uh, it's not just a basic service operation, uh, but you know, platformization, digitalization uh, are fundamentally changing where you find operations. So we do want to encourage people both to identify operations in management and also uh, to make this information available to other management journals. So we are a management journal that drills down on operations where operations we see as where you do the stuff. I could go on, but I'll pause it there. What are some suggestions that you have uh, for authors who are submitting work to your uh, journal? What would you say would be something that they should keep in mind when trying to prepare their manuscript uh, for success? My biggest advice is read the read the journal. You know, read other articles in the journal. Make sure your article aligns with and fits with the with the purpose of of that particular journal. Many, I would say for me, and not to talk about desk rejects because they're very upsetting, but but I mean the main reasons for desk reject at my journal. Number one, they don't fit to the journal. I mean. It's, it's something as basic as that. Like if you, well, I won't give examples of things that don't fit, but, but um, they don't fit with the, the scope and the audience of our journal. And the second thing, which is going to sound horrible, is uh, there, there's uh, the cross-check or the plagiarism check is extremely high to, to where we're not getting original work and we can't publish anything that's not original. So my suggestion is, even if you if you have access to it, to run your manuscripts through those cross-check systems or plagiarism checks before you submit it to a journal, because that's one of the things that will will get you kicked out of the pipeline immediately. So so make sure it fits and make sure it's original work. So I'm tempted to throw out just one more to build on that a little bit. I, I actually had a personal experience that was bad with the plagiarism issue, it's self-plagiarism. So just be careful, and it was only methods, you know, but if you have a, if you're using a, a data set or, or building on a prior study, go ahead and rewrite that method section. Uh, I mean, just twist, just flipping words around. It's crazy that we have to do that, but unfortunately, that'll save, that'll save you some headaches, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, by doing that, just a small thing. But other than that, I would say, you know, on the topic of methods, obviously methods, uh, is receiving a lot of attention, a lot of uh, um, things being written about methods. So whatever method you use, just be sure to try to understand what the current standards are for that method um, and um, you know, address the, the key issues. So for example, a lot of people are moving more toward archival studies, uh, secondary data these days. Well, um, obviously there's strengths and weaknesses to every method. And in that particular one, um, I think it's almost the standard now that you make sure that whatever proxy measure you're using, you, you at least try to look at other possible proxies. So that because any proxy measure you use probably wasn't 
the data wasn't collected for the reason that you're trying to use it for. So it's important to have some triangulation on the types of measures you use. And of course, there's certain robustness checks and endogeneity uh, measures that you might take uh, to address in that kind of study. So similarly, whether it's surveys or experiments, or and several of the journals here, especially JOM, has put out some guidance papers. There's one recently now on experiments uh, that you know you should take a look at. So just make sure you're up to date on you know, what the expectations are with whatever method it is you're using. I would add a slight variation. Wendy said is you'd, we want papers that will join the conversation or build conversations in that scope of, of the journal. So you need to understand the conversations going on and what conversation you can add, understand the readership. You're, 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 you are con contributing to people who are interested in managing service managing service rather than contributing people who are interested in operations per se. You're, you're bringing operations voice to the people who manage services and that, 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 that's what we'd be looking for in the Journal of Service Management, Service Research, right? and after that, the Journal of Service Management is pretty similar. I would add that when you submit a manuscript, your cover letter is a great opportunity to help convince the editors that you're making a contribution, that you understand the conversation and how you're contributing. Don't just paste your abstract in the cover letter. Uh, say something about why you think this really goes well in this journal, contributes to the literature, and then use it as an opportunity to say if you're basing this off previous data set used in another study, or if you've used the same method in a previous paper, and you're afraid to cite it in your paper to give away the double-blind review process. The cover letter is your opportunity to disclose these types of things to the editors so that they're not surprised, because editors don't like to be surprised in the process. It's an unpleasant thing. So. Uh, one thing that I would encourage uh, people to do is to think about the review process. We, we tend to think that it's either yes, no, I get accepted or I get rejected, and if I get rejected, then it's like <clears throat> the end of the line. Most papers, especially interesting ones, get rejected several times before they move forward, and we are increasingly using reject and resubmit decisions. Like, we are here to move the paper forward. We want to publish papers. We want to encourage ideas. Uh, but a revision decision means that we see a way to publication. You do these eight things, you're going to suffer. By the way, it's hard. You know, anybody who expects that it's going to be easy is just going to make themselves unhappy. Uh, so you get a revision decision, you do those eight things, you dot the I's, you cross the T's. We don't even send it back to the reviewer because it's clear enough that the AE and the DE should be able to say, check, done, check, done, check, done, uh, you know, fine. So reject and resubmit decision means, you know, there's something in your paper that we like, and we like it enough that we want to kind of hold on to this knowledge, but we would like to give you feedback about ways that you might be thinking about writing a completely different paper uh, a very different paper uh, that you probably won't be able to do in a 90-day window. Uh, and uh, so and even if it's a pure reject. So a pure reject means that there's not enough there that we want to maintain a history. Uh, and so that, but we still are going to be looking for ways to encourage you. Now, 
uh, we have a steady stream of manuscripts across our desk. So when a manuscript comes across our desk and then, you know, we make the decision how much, let's say that we see that the manuscript is not going to go forward at JOM. Uh, we can send a very short desk reject saying, you know, here are some papers you should look at, by the way. You know, we're, we try to be as polite uh, and constructive as possible, but we're not going to put very much into the feedback. We're more likely to do that when an author team has simply not signaled in any way they've put very much into thinking about their article at JOM. They didn't use the cover letter. They didn't, um, like I had a, I was looking at a paper yesterday that was saying, I think that the, this paper would fit well in like annals of accounting for these reasons. And I'm like, yeah, that happens remarkably frequently. If you make the transition, okay, you don't have to reformat the references, but what you do need to do is you need to take a few days and think about, so I thought my paper was here, but now I'm going to try it JOM. Here's why I'm trying it JOM. Explain it to the editors. One of the reasons you explain it to us is then you get your thinking clear yourself. Uh, and the more you do that, oh, and by the way, the paper got rejected here. You know that there is a substantial probability it's going to end up with the same reviewers because we are not exactly the world's largest community. And so you think about what are the key, like these reviewers. So no reviewer understands your paper. Reviewers are not God. They are peers. And these are peers where you didn't explain it well enough. If you didn't explain it well enough, then, you know, the reviewer feedback hurts. You know, it's, it's not fun. But make use of every comment, seeing that even though if you go to a different journal, you're likely to have the same reviewer again. Be prepared. And explain to the editor, I submitted this paper to, you know, to this journal, and it did not go forward in the publication process because of these four reasons. Uh, and we have addressed those reasons. We've also addressed all the reviewer comments. We can make them available if that would be useful. Just you know, communicating that, because we work our buns off. You have two reviewers, an AE, a DE, and one of us. And we are really thinking about your paper. And if you're like, eh, then we're not going to be happy. And if we're grouchy, we're going to help you be grouchy. Good thoughts. <laughs> the, uh, the next question I have is about empirical context. So uh, we see a lot of papers in operations, supply chain, that look at a traditional context. That's a study, uh, a research question to test their hypotheses. To what extent do you think the field is open to looking at non-traditional empirical contexts? Um, how helpful or, or are there downsides with doing so? What are, what's an example of a non-traditional? Sure. Um, so I have a colleague who uh, has a, a background in athletics, studying sports as a, a context. And we've seen uh, some papers in, in the management discipline that looked at like team dynamics in baseball, looking at roles and how different roles contribute to performance. So I guess that's uh, one perspective that I'll come from. I think 
I mean, I can't speak for all the journals, but I'm pretty sure I, IGFM and, and many of the others are very open to non-traditional content, yeah. not-for-profit, government, uh, and just about anything outside of factory you can think of. Uh, is that? <clears throat> yeah, so I, I, I think the sky's the limit. I, I mean, most of us have a what I would call a big O operations view of, you know, of the world where just about any, I've heard Tyson say this, you know, any, it's, it's about work. Anything that's got work involved or something, you can say it better, Tyson. What, what do you usually say? Yeah, I'd say operations management's the management of work. Yes. We have other disciplines managing people, managing money. So operations is really about how are you getting things done in organizations, and that's very broad. In whatever context. Yeah, yeah. And context is, you know, secondary in many cases, but some some sort of organization, some sort of uh, work. And usually we talk about that in a process yep. of some sort. So yeah. if you can fit it in that context, it's very broad. And we're actually looking for opportunities to publish papers about operations outside the what we might call the traditional factories and services and so on. Today there's a lot of complex systems, for example. Utilities, networks of various kinds. We've got ride-sharing services. How do these types of organizations or enterprises operate? How can they be more efficient, more effective, more consistent? All these things we want. So this is, uh, I think, great opportunities to think broadly about operations management and what we can contribute. Um, you know adding, adding to the management of work, uh, I would also say the management of flow. Uh, and, uh, and if you're thinking about the management of flow, I strongly suggest that you go back and look at Morgan's paper, uh, Schmitter and Swink, 1998, right, mm -hmm. on the theory of swift even flow, uh, which as we move more to, uh, you know, with the, the new way, the new forms that operations uh, uh, are taking, uh, then that theory becomes more and more relevant. And it was a lot more relevant uh, but we just were ignoring it because we were too focused on lean. Yeah, and you know what? In the grand scheme of things, we want to see interesting research. You know, I mean, that's that's the big that's the big thing. We don't need to see a, another RBV paper that you know looks at something that's already been looked at. Make it interesting. That's what's fun about about research. So uh, JSCM isn't here, but they have a they have a number of incubators where they're trying to drive new and innovative research looking at a non-economic stakeholder as the as the focal firm or looking at um, just different areas so so make it interesting of course for students you got to get your stuff published but you know make it so we enjoy reading it yep. make it and it's fun to do sometimes yeah but my, my most extreme one I did a study of experiential services of design and as part of that, I had to talk to the designers, for example, Royal Caribbean, about how you design your, your service. And I, I, I got, got the introduction to the president, and I said, it's great. So can I send my researcher over to Miami? And she, he said, great. Then he said, there's only one condition. She has to take a cruise. So she provided them with a, a free one-week cruise for research purposes only. <laughs> so, and it got a... Two very good papers out of that, I might add as well. Now, last night, <laughs> somebody, we were talking about doing a research project with airlines to compare first class versus, you know, business class versus the coach. And we've all experienced coach, but we, we had to do the, 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 research. the on site research. 
that I want to challenge all of you to go do some research on auditing services or sales offices because those guys are doing the research in our area. So I would love to go get the accountants and the marketing people and do some work in their area just to pay them back a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we have an operations interfaces department at JOM where we're very interested in how the operations affect or take place in marketing, finance, accounting, HR, all sorts of other functions in the enterprise. And when you think about interventionist research, uh, so one of the things which happens is you go in and you have this perfect theory, you came up with it deductively, and uh, you've just got everything organized. And then you go into companies who agree that everything you're saying makes perfect sense, uh, but oops, the accounting rules make no sense whatsoever, but they are in force. And so you're like, slam up against the wall. And so then you end up doing research with people in accounting, which is why we have the Operational Interfaces Department, for example. One of the things that we've been seeing is um, increased sophistication in terms of statistical tool sets and uh, capabilities in our journals. So we've seen more econometrics, we're seeing interest in agent-based modeling um, in, in operations. Uh, but the, the challenge may be, um, how do we, as authors, um, provide enough information, enough understanding, so that when reviewers are looking at uh, some of this research, they understand what we're trying to accomplish. Could you talk about some of the challenges that authors may have as they venture into new advanced statistical tools and techniques? So one of the things which is going to happen um, is, so methods are amazingly sophisticated now. And so this means that you have the job of making your work accessible to a peer reviewer. Uh, and we have the empirical methods department and we now send complex papers um, there first because we realize that the level of complexity for methods has reached a point, especially when you have judgment decisions about endogeneity, uh, where we want to have different reviewers on the methods, and then once it's passed the methods check, then we go to see whether it crosses the bar on the context side. If it doesn't, it's still in better shape to go to more of a field journal, even if the contribution it doesn't warrant publication in a management journal. Now, uh, think about the reviewer. Put yourself in the reviewer's place. By the way, do reviewing. And so if the reviewer has a 70-page paper uh, with uh, small tables, they're going to be grouchy. Uh, but if you have additional material to address questions that they might have, and you make it easily available, and the body of the paper tells the story, and going back to what Wendy said, it's interesting. We can work with this. Now, uh, our journals tend to be published were, you know, by Elsevier or, hi Simon, uh, or Wiley, and uh, the publishers have made clear that we do not have page constraints. A long article is less likely to be cited, is less likely to make it through the review process, but if you have additional material which helps people to replicate your work, uh, we can do it in an appendix or in an online appendix, and we have space for that. Uh, so really think first about the reviewer and then about the reader.
I'll add one of the most common places the plagiarism software shows issues is in the method sections. And uh, this is because people copy other papers. I use Kronbach's alpha, or and it was above or below some amount, so therefore, and they're just trying to recite the incantations that they saw made it through some publication in another journal. And it's just interesting, it's all highlighted as coming from the same other paper somewhere. And I would really suggest a couple things. One, of course, don't just copy another paper, but two, uh, be very familiar with the method you're using and what's the state of the art. What, what's the latest methods paper about that method out there in one of our journals that talks about how to use that method correctly and what are the pitfalls and how to avoid those. And I'm not an expert in all these methods either, so we're having to rely on experts to review these papers and we'll try to match with those experts to make that go as well as possible. I, I, I just reinforce what's just been said. I've just, from personal experience, really had a paper just been published, in fact, and the turning point in the publication was when we sent a large, we didn't put all the method, with complex methods, different methods, we didn't put it all in the original paper, just for length reasons, and raised all sorts of questions. And then, then I think, at the second, second round, we sent, we sent in a supplementary, a large supplementary thing, explained the method in great detail, and everything, but uh, and all of a sudden, boom, yeah, they read, they, 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 yeah, the method was understood, or someone else, they could check the method, and everything was fine, but with the, the, the dilemma, as you put it, is, is sometimes you want to keep the paper short, but actually explaining methods takes a long time, and that's, that's a real dilemma, and I think having, I've only, I've only been through this once personally, but I found the supplement, putting a supplementary thing was really helpful uh, and solved a lot of problems. Yeah, I would say actually, I feel like the journals are really well equipped to address statistical methodologies, but some of them are not very well equipped on the qualitative side, and you just have to be cognizant of that and make sure you educate the reviewers. You know, for example, if it's a grounded theory versus case study versus action research, there's a lot of people, who of us can tell you what the key differences of those things are? Uh, there's not a lot of reviewers out there at certain journals who know those distinctions. So if, if you're doing something like grounded theory, it's not case studies, but it's a grounded theory approach that's different, you need to make sure that you can explain that to the reviewers uh, so that they don't try to force you into a different method than you're actually using. Yep. Suzanne said something really important. She said, please review. That's super important. We need we need people that are strong and in all of these areas, uh, helping us to review for our journals, and it, it's uh, it's an important part of our community. The the thing that, that uh, always sticks with me, public publishing is so hard. Okay, I mean it, it is a very challenging game, for lack of a better a better way to say it. But we don't we want to publish your work. It's not like we're sitting here trying to drive up our rejection rates because that doesn't make any of us happy. We're, we're basically happy people and we'd like to stay that way. So, so, um, you, so we want, we're not the gatekeeper. We really want you guys to get these, these good um, articles published. We want to see your work out there in, in the public domain. So 
So don't, you know, we're not the bad guys. And just know if you can, there's some basic stuff that will help you to sort of facilitate your publication efforts. You just have to follow some, some rules. One of the things that we saw over the weekend, I think it was a PDW on supply chain network research. And that seems to be a, a one of the uh, several emerging areas um, that we're seeing increased attention these days. Um, on, the, on the downside, there are barriers to entry into that space in terms of being able to construct data sets that would allow researchers to test uh, uh, questions in that, in that particular area. So I'm kind of interested in your perspective as to how can the journals help facilitate research in that space, whether it be calls for research or helping facilitate the sharing of data or relationships with some of the vendors who can provide that kind of data to help uh, um, spur more research in that particular area as an example. That's too hard question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can create a department for it, you can make special issues, you can, you know, there's lots of ways to kind of encourage it. Something uh, MSOM does, an informs journal, is they uh, will publish data sets, apparently. And there are different rules and approaches to follow for this, but this is something we'll be thinking about going forward. Because I agree, good data sets are really hard to get. They're very valuable. And often, you'll find colleagues who've got a great data set and took them years to get it. And they'll be the first to admit that there's a lot more there than they're ever going to get to. <laughs> and the data do get stale eventually, so it's almost like there's an expiration date. And so why not open this up if you could get some sort of credit for kind of publishing the data set itself. Mm -hmm. And others could then not only uh, try to replicate studies and results, but maybe find other interesting research questions to answer with that data set. So something we're thinking about. Uh, maybe a possibility. We'll have to think carefully though about kind of what the, the threshold and the criteria are for that sort of thing. Building on that, uh, the other thing is how much data do you need? So remember that science is learning from observation. So there's there are some things uh, where you are doing, um, you know, a, a clinical trial or, you know, uh, randomized uh, and uh, you have quite a bit of data, that's wonderful. Uh, but there, but you don't start with that. Uh, and uh, so that what I hear Dave saying is that sometimes when you're just trying to figure out whether something is interesting, uh, then you don't have a huge data set, but you don't need one. So last year at the PDW, we did um, uh, a session on small N research. Uh, and what we would like to encourage are what we call empirically grounded research questions. Because by the time you get around to this gold standard, beautifully designed, randomized clinical trial, you are, you've made a lot of decisions. And so when you, so what we would like to encourage you to do is use black swans that you see walking down the street uh, to provide warrant for why it's worth collecting data in a given area. Uh, and we don't need to go from, I wonder whether this could matter uh, to full generalizability in one paper. That's simply impossible. It's not going to happen. 
uh, would it be possible to actually submit a paper with a smaller sample, like 100 Absolutely. kids, for example? Then there's a nice, interesting idea. There is already something that looks good and that you can, like in the revision process, collect more data. And in the end, like, would something like that also be possible? Because I have often the thing that uh, I have, like, unfortunately, only 100 cases, 150 cases. I see something very interesting, but I know it would be never be fit for any top journal. And then it's always the big question, ah, should I go further on that or should I better focus on my main research? Because often it's student research. Uh, and then I, I wonder if I better can focus on my own research because it has more possibility to be published. Would a that be possible? A paper that you might want to look at is Kerukivi et al. 2017 and the mm -hmm. special issue on how to manufacture competitively in a high-cost environment. Mm -hmm. They had 35 cases. Uh, and from those 35 cases, then some insights arose uh, that were useful. Are they generalizable? No, but they uh, encourage the formulation of uh, testable hypotheses. Yeah, but as so, far as I hear, I have to use the sample I sent already. The first submission is the sample I also publish in the end. So it would be also quite interesting for, for submitting it to a journal with a smaller sample, and when you say, oh, that's a great, interesting idea, I like your idea, uh, to then... Take a look at what Keto Kipi et okay. al. did okay. in that paper, because I think it, it would provide... It also guidance. depends on your methods. Yeah. Yeah. Some methods, 100 is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> For other methods, it's not. Yes. So that makes a huge difference. Okay. Yeah. It depends what you mean by case. Yeah. Is, 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 is it actually a survey or is it in-depth case? 100 in depth cases is no, a this, lifetime. This case well. survey. Survey, yeah. so survey is different. Yeah. 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 In cases, you, you can publish good papers on one case. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But think about yourself in a court of law. I mean, it, it, it's not, uh, you know, that... How do we, I'll come back to the word yeah. warrant, yeah. Uh, we, you know, when we look at your data, you need to convince us, like we're like a jury, yeah. convince us that we can rely on it. Because when we say that we've learned something and then other people are going to build on it, that is serious. And if we build wrong, then we end up with wrong knowledge, which is worse than not doing anything at all. Uh, it's coming back to your I, I, I would suggest one route for you would be if, if you've got 100 small survey coming up with some interesting, interesting hypotheses which aren't really statistically fully testable, why not take, the, take those and do some in-depth cases uh, and actually develop them further so you've actually got mixed methods to allow you to put forward some stronger hypotheses? Yes. Mm -hmm. The only question is whether that's allowed in the review process or you would simply directly say reject. This comes yeah, back, to, this comes back yeah. to what Wendy said. Yeah. Uh, like, so the Ketokivi et al. paper that you should read. Then starts with these you know, 35 hmm. you know, cases, stories, narratives, and uh, you know, good evidence of why this was what was actually happening in the company. But the contribution was interesting. Uh, so that if you have cases... Uh, that don't allow generalizability, but if uh, Dan Guide, the previous EIC at JOM, would talk about the delta. If you've got a big delta, that the, what do what do we know after we read your paper that we didn't know before? Do we care? A lot of the time, we don't care. And this comes back one of the things that a, a lot of editors are, are emphasizing now: is please do not talk to us about a gap. Um, that a lot of gaps exist because it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know? yes. uh, so there was, in one of the editorial panels, there was a, who, who gave, had the idea of bridges? 
Oh, bridges and buffers. What was that? Yeah. It was one of the pants yesterday. I don't know. Well, bridges versus just gap filling. Yeah. In other words, there's a lot of valleys out there that don't need to be filled in, but sometimes we do need a bridge from one mountain to another. Yeah. And one of the nice things that comes in the review process is that somebody will say, well, uh, you are using this theory base, but by the way, the question that you're trying to address has been nicely addressed in this other theory base. So a main thing that, that you get from the reviewers who cordially reject your paper is they let you know the theory that you should be thinking about and you experience gratitude. I just want to say, I'm kind of reading this into the, into the question of reason, the way you ask the question. But I would you know, encourage us all to not fall into this trap of, of some standard being a, a hard standard like there's a certain sample size you have to have. There's no, there's no such thing, right? Uh, it depends. It always depends. I mean, even uh, okay, your significance level has to be 0.05 or less. That that's that's just a guideline. It's something that's widely accepted, right? But um, I can imagine scenarios where 0.06 might be good enough, you know. Uh, so let's just try not to. Uh, set these kind of black and white rules that, that say, oh, if we don't meet this coefficient alpha or whatever, 0.7, it's 0.69, it's not good enough. That, that's not scholarly, right? So and I think most of the enlightened editors uh, and reviewers understand that, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, think always, about the reasons behind it. trade-offs yeah. yeah. in the yeah. papers yeah. between rigor and interest exactly. and other yeah, things. Exactly. I was just right. about to say yeah. that. I make it interesting. I, I, I have, I'm not very good at method, but I, I have a, a series of papers where the first review comes back and says, mm, method, but this is very interesting. <laughs> and they usually get published after, after hard work, I might add. Yeah. But if, if it's really interesting and the method isn't right, you're much more likely to go further if you have a really rigorous method and it's so what. So make, make it interesting. <laughs> Does anyone have any other questions for the editor panel? I do. Um, Yuri, um, I would like to recall the history of surveys, right, in our field. Surveys started as something very descriptive in the 80s, then they moved on to something more complex and increasingly complex over the following years after the 90s, and then, boom, some time ago, someone said, look, we are doing too much, we are asking too much for, from this particular method, we are trying to get too much from that. What is the role of surveys in modern uh, operations and supply chain management research? Okay, so I've, you know, I'm a big surveyor, have done a lot of surveys. So I, I, I thought about this a lot too because of course there's a lot of uh, pushback and, and concern about surveys methods. And again, I'll say, as I said earlier, every method has its strengths and weaknesses. And I don't think it's, again, I don't think it's scholarly to just out of hand reject one or favor another method. You have to consider the pros and cons, but uh, but we are moving on as a field. And I think to kind of be considered uh, rigorous and respectable and all that, we need to we need to address the issues. So, okay, surveys. So here's, uh, if you're addressing something that actually cares about perception and you, you, you want to measure perception, then surveys are, are great, right? They're good at measuring perceptions, uh, perhaps, if you do, do them well. If you're addressing questions or issues that are maybe not perceptual, but 
um, you can you can specify the items, the questions in very concrete ways, which are likely to be interpreted with reliability. Then I think surveys are good, right? If you um, something else I was going to say on that that score, but I can't remember. If you're if you're addressing something where there's an interaction or a moderation effect that's key. Uh, that has been shown, and I think it's pretty well accepted, that that's less susceptible to common method bias or some of the concerns that you have with just kind of main effects or mediation effects or things like that that you're trying to test in a survey, uh, in, a, in a model, right? Um, so I, there may be some other guidelines. Those are the ones I'm thinking of now, but there's still opportunities for sort I mean, the, the, another key, that's what I was going to say. The other key is if you're trying to measure something uh, that's fairly latent in nature, and it's just not possible. Nothing's impossible, I would say, but it's very difficult, practically unobservable uh, in an objective way. Then surveys might be your your only option, your best option. So I, I think you can still make the case for it. Uh, the The point is to be considerate of that and in the early stages, and take your research question and try to pick the best method that gives you a chance to address that research question in a reliable and valid, rigorous way. Yeah. Just to add, this, and this is my own personal opinion, but I've been seeing more and more people using these, these, this panel data, for lack of a better way to describe it, so research now, or you know, these survey firms, and what I take issue with is that we don't know who's answering the questions, you know? And so it's hard for me to say, okay, we're, we're paying for people and, and good money, we're paying for people to answer these questions, but we don't even know if they're part of our, our demographic, the people that we want to answer the questions. So, so for me, I, that's when, when, I, when I see survey papers, I'm like, oh man, did you really make the effort to go out and collect your, your responses from the pool where you wanted those responses, or did you just go and, and pay a survey firm and hope you got the, the right people? So that's my own personal issue I have with surveys. And JOM still open to surveys despite the myth that <laughs> seems to have circulated. <laughs> but uh, we are quite open, but just a few key things to keep in mind. Uh, when you have only a single respondent from an organization, that's a red flag. And Morgan talked about the model that you're trying to gather data on and test. It's best if the survey is only part of your data for that rather than answering your independent and dependent variables from that survey because that even increases your chances of common method bias and endogeneity problems. So if you can get somehow independent, say, performance or outcome data about your model, and then the survey is just used for some of the subjective or perceptual uh, causes that you're testing, potentially. Uh, that's going to put you in a better position than if you're subjectively assessing the results and the mechanisms. So that's a couple more things to watch out for. And coming back to a point that, that Morgan made earlier, uh, so at JOM, we publish regular methods pieces to provide exactly this kind of guidance. Uh, so the first thing that you want to do is read every single one. And also look at the evolution. 
Uh, and then we have uh, the department editor for the Methodist department, Mika Reinker, who is very open to, if, if you've got a specific question, uh, he's very helpful uh, at pointing you in the right direction. Uh, and, but, you know, papers that fare poorly uh, are ones that, uh, you know, cite the old, you know, we come back to more incantations. Uh, I don't have comment on the bias because I, I did, you know, the, the usual <laughs> things. And we're like, no, please. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. um. So I'd like to thank the editor panel for uh, 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 coming here this morning at such an early hour. Anyway, have a good day. Thank Listen to the Editors is an initiative of the Operations and Supply Chain Management Division of the Academy of Management. We post our interviews monthly in our division website. You can discuss any of the topics of this episode using our interactive tool, connect.aom.org. Using the discussion section of our site, you can also post suggestions for questions, journal editors you would like to hear from, and requests for clarifications. You can also subscribe to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or with the Podcast Addict app on Android. See you next month.